Due to the sensitive nature of today's material, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes graphic descriptions of death and the desecration of bodies. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the spring of 1980, a middle-aged man named Clervius Narcisse sauntered into his hometown in Haiti's Artibonite Valley. He moved with a heavy gait, looking around with vacant eyes. He was here to find his sister. They hadn't seen each other for nearly 18 years. The villagers watched Narcisse carefully, afraid. Something seemed off about him, but at the same time, he looked eerily familiar. He reminded them of someone they knew once. Narcisse approached a woman he believed to be his sister and introduced himself by his childhood nickname, something only his sister would recognize. The woman reeled back. There was no way the man who stood before her could be her brother. Her brother died. She buried him in a grave outside of the village nearly 18 years ago. A crowd gathered, inching closer in disbelief. Their eyes had to be playing tricks on them. He couldn't be real. And yet, there he was, back from the dead, a living zombie. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on a classic cult monster, the zombie. Before these mythical beings started appearing in movies and TV shows, they were part of a traditional voodoo belief. Even today, people have accounts of zombification that seem to defy our understanding of the natural world. Today, we'll meet an anthropologist who, in the 80s, sought a mysterious potion said to turn humans into zombies, one that he believed could revolutionize science. Before his search ended, he came face to face with a man who claimed to have returned from the dead. Next time, we'll uncover how a mind-controlling fungus creates zombie colonies in the insect kingdom and examine Amazonian plants that can put victims into a death-like stupor. Finally, we'll follow an author who infiltrated Haitian secret societies to learn the secrets of zombification. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 1982, 28-year-old Canadian ethnobotanist Wade Davis was teaching an undergraduate course at Harvard. While at work one day, he received an unexpected request from a well-known psychopharmacologist and his colleague. At a meeting two days later, they told Davis they wanted to hire him for an unusual assignment. They'd heard rumors about a miraculous and poisonous concoction that seemed to defy the laws of science and they wanted Davis to try and find it. Apparently, it had the power to put someone into such a deep stupor, the results mimicked death. According to claims, the mixture could lower a person's blood pressure, temperature, and pulse until it rendered them immobile. Witnesses and medical professionals often mistook them for dead. As a result, many were buried within days of ingesting the brew. But while their family wailed over their caskets, the patient was alive, aware of what was happening, unable to cry out for help. Even more strange, days after being buried, victims would climb out of their graves and return to the world of the living. All it took was a mysterious antidote to bring them back. Davis wrote about the meeting with the psychopharmacologist in his book, The Serpent and the Rainbow. To him, the story sounded like an elaborate hoax. But if it was true, the poison and its antidote could have incredible real-world applications. Doctors could anesthetize patients before surgery and wake them up immediately after. NASA scientists could experiment with artificial hibernation for space missions. The possibilities seemed endless. Davis was hesitant to believe the claims. But his new acquaintances assured him they were credible. There was proof the poison worked. Davis could travel to Haiti and speak with a living zombie himself. Davis's expertise was in anthropological studies and biology, with an emphasis on rare plants. This mission had the potential to take him far outside his comfort zone, to the frontier of death. But he accepted the job. In the spring of 1982, Davis arrived in Haiti searching for a local plant or animal with the power to create a zombie. The task would be difficult. Davis was an outsider. Coming from an American institution, his knowledge of zombies most likely came from horror movies like The Night of the Living Dead. But long before zombies became a pop culture phenomenon in the States, the idea that the dead could come back to life was a fixture in some Central African belief systems. 
In the Congo, Gabon, and Angola, people believed that when someone passed away, a sorcerer could trap their soul in a small jar or container. This would allow the person wielding the magic to control the dead person's body, effectively turning them into a zombie. In the early 1500s, European nations enslaved thousands of Africans, transporting them to the Caribbean, which today includes the country of Haiti. The abductees continued practicing their traditional religions in secret. This included Vodun, or what is commonly referred to as voodoo. And through their spiritual practices, the zombie mythos lived on. Once in Haiti, Davis met a man named Max Beauvoir. Beauvoir was a voodoo priest, and every night he held commercial rituals in his temple for tourists. Davis attended one to learn more about the belief system. As the ceremony began, Davis heard the sound of drums pick up. A woman in white robes danced. This was her initiation ritual. As the beat pulsed through her body, it was as if she was calling spirits to her. And it seemed to be working. Over the course of the night, Davis watched the woman speak in an unrecognizable language, eat fire without being burned, and lift huge men off of the ground with little effort. She seemed possessed. When it ended, she returned to her normal state, unharmed, like nothing happened. The raw spectacle intrigued Davis. The man of science wondered whether there was something to the power of voodoo after all. When Davis asked Beauvoir about the rumored zombie potion, Beauvoir filled the Canadian in on everything he knew. According to Beauvoir, the poison was created by a bokor, a voodoo priest who worked in black magic or sorcery. Apparently, a bokor could be hired to capture a corpse's soul and resurrect the dead person's body so it could be used for hard labor. The concept sounded unlike any Hollywood film he'd seen. As an outsider, Davis could only imagine what it might be like to suffer such a fate. But his next point of contact would help illuminate the experience. A man named Marcel Pierre. To some, Pierre was a voodoo priest. To others, he was a ruthless militant who'd served a group that killed thousands of Haitians. Many believe Pierre lacked any real spiritual knowledge and faked his voodoo powers to scare his enemies. Despite his reputation, rumors suggested Pierre was skilled at making the zombie poison. In his book, The Serpent and the Rainbow, Davis writes that within his first 48 hours on the island, he'd taken a drive through the Artibonite Valley to a town called Saint-Marc. It was there that Pierre owned a local drinking spot called the Eagle Bar. As Davis stepped inside, loud music and cheap perfume assaulted his senses. Small, dark rooms with numbered doors offered sex workers a place to take their clients. A young boy led Davis to the back of the establishment. Outside, through a series of doors and past a few small houses, they arrived at a temple. After the boy knocked on the gate three times, Pierre appeared. He stood tall, wearing dark glasses that hid his eyes. Davis was introduced as a powerful, influential man from New York who wanted a sample of the zombie poison. 
Pierre understood that Davis would pay handsomely for it. Pierre looked up and down, seemingly unimpressed. He motioned to follow him inside. Davis entered into the temple's inner sanctum. A large altar nearly filled the room. It held brightly colored powders, feathers, doll heads, and three skulls, two that were human. The head of a pufferfish and a whip hung, mounted on the wall above him. Pierre produced an aspirin container in a plastic bag and a ketchup bottle. The bottle was filled with oil. He poured it into his hands. Next, Pierre handed Davis a cloth to cover his nose and mouth. They were handling dangerous substances. To illustrate his point, Pierre pointed at a scar on the side of his face, explaining the potion had caused it. He was lucky. The mixture could kill if they weren't careful. When Davis was ready, he cracked open the aspirin container. He peered inside and saw a coarse, light brown powder. Pierre was eager to negotiate prices, but Davis wanted to be sure what he was buying was real. He needed to know the ingredients. Pierre seemed hesitant, but Davis reminded the Haitian that he had deep pockets. Pierre reluctantly agreed to create the zombie poison from scratch the next day. When Davis met Pierre again, they headed to an apothecary. Pierre instructed him to gather packets of talc, a thickening agent often found in household items like baby powder. He gathered some leaves in a northern shrubland. When they returned to Pierre's temple, the voodoo priest grabbed an ingredient from his altar, a human skull. Pierre tore up the leaves and shaved off pieces of the skull. In a mortar, he combined the ingredients and ground them into a powder, adding the talc. Pierre insisted this was his poison. To gauge Pierre's reaction, Davis told him that he was planning to use the potion on an enemy. But Pierre seemed confident the mixture would do the job. Davis paid the agreed-upon amount and left. Eventually, Davis headed to a neurology and psychiatry institute in Port-au-Prince to visit a man named Lamarck Douillon. Intelligent and soft-spoken, Douillon had grown up in Haiti, having heard stories of people returning from the dead. As an adult, he realized many Westerners dismissed zombies as fiction, so he made it his mission to let others know zombies were real. Among practitioners of voodoo, when a person committed a crime, a tribunal sometimes punished an individual by sentencing them to life as a zombie. It was like trying a case in a court of law, except everything was decided in secret. People in a voodoo society were supposed to follow a code of social ethics. If they didn't, the tribunal could hire a bokor to steal a transgressor's soul. It was an extreme verdict, arguably worse than death, as a zombie's life of hard labor could potentially last for years. Duyon knew of at least one case where this had happened. A middle-aged Haitian named Clervius Narcisse. And soon, Davis would have a chance to interview the zombie face to face. Coming up, Narcisse recounts his death and resurrection. You tell yourself it's only a movie. None of this could ever happen to you. You feel relieved until you discover what you're watching is based on actual events. 
Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa and Greg from the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. In our Halloween special, Real Horror, we're spotlighting three of the most iconic horror films of all time and telling the terrifying true stories that inspired them. We're covering the real influences behind characters like Ghostface from the 90s mega-hit Scream, Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill from the Oscar-winning thriller The Silence of the Lambs, and Leatherface from the 70s cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Enjoy Real Horror, the Serial Killer's three-part Halloween special. Listen to all three episodes the final week of October, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Wade Davis flew to Port-au-Prince in 1982, hoping to find the ingredients for a poison that turned the living into the living dead. He hoped to find its antidote as well. In Haiti, he spoke with psychiatrist Lamarck Douillon, who gave him the name of a man, Clervius Narcisse. According to Douillon, Narcisse was a zombie. Now, Davis had the chance to meet Narcisse and find out what exactly that meant. As Narcisse shuffled into Dion's office, Davis couldn't help but notice that the man seemed physically fit and robust, not what he assumed a zombie would look like. But he listened to Narcisse share his story anyway. Over the course of several interviews, this is what he learned. On April 30th, 1962, 40-year-old Narcisse had checked into a hospital in the Artibonite Valley on the western coast of Haiti. He told the staff he'd been suffering from body aches and fevers. Before long, he began coughing up blood. Two days after his intake, he experienced difficulty breathing and felt extremely weak. Finally, on May 2nd, two physicians, including an American-trained doctor, declared him dead. Later, his sisters arrived to identify the body. Once ID'd, he was placed into a cold storage room for 20 hours. Then, he was brought to his home in Lestaire and buried just north of the village. His family held a small service and slid a large concrete memorial slab over his grave. As far as they were concerned, Narcisse had moved on to the afterlife. But what they didn't know was Narcisse was lying in his grave, aware of everything happening around him. It felt like living in a waking nightmare. No matter how hard he tried to move or speak, he couldn't. During his funeral, he heard his sisters crying. As they closed the casket, a coffin nail scraped his face. He didn't feel it, but it left a scar. At some point after his burial, Narcisse felt as though his soul was separated from his physical form. He found himself floating above his grave, and for reasons he didn't understand, he lingered near his body. He couldn't move on. According to Narcisse, 
He didn't know how long he remained in that state. But at some point, a Bokor and the Bokor's assistant returned to reclaim his body. They snatched his soul back down to Earth and called Narcisse by his name. From underground, Narcisse heard a drum and a loud vibration. His grave opened up and a hand pulled him out. He was free, but his suffering was far from over. It was night. Narcisse could barely see. The Bokor and his assistant bound, gagged, and whipped him. They wrapped him in black cloth and forced him to walk through the darkness. They traveled for nearly half the night. It seemed to go on like this for days. In that time, Narcisse was transferred between an unknown number of traffickers. Finally, he arrived at a sugar plantation in the village of Ravine Trompette, where he was put to work. Narcisse remained a field hand on an estate for the next two years. He wasn't alone. He worked with others who shared the same fate, all zombies. Narcisse was trapped in a strange nightmare that he couldn't escape. He could only do as he was told. Zombies could apparently remain under a Bokor spell for years. Oftentimes, the Bokor would feed them a hallucinogenic powder to keep them compliant and subdued. One morning, two years after his arrival on the plantation, Narcisse witnessed a fellow zombie being whipped for insubordination. In and of itself, this wasn't unusual. But on this occasion, the enraged zombie grabbed a hoe and fought back. He killed the Bokor. Suddenly, it was like a spell had been broken. The zombies slowly regained their wills. Narcisse was finally free to go home, but he wasn't sure it was a good idea. He believed he knew who'd arranged for him to be zombified, his brother. For the next 16 years, Narcisse wandered the country without a home. Then, one day, he learned his brother had died. He returned home in 1980, but was shunned as an outcast. Eventually, he found his way to Lamarck Duyon, who arranged for this meeting with Davis. After hearing Narcisse's account, Wade Davis headed to Narcisse's home village. It seemed hard to believe that such a mild-mannered man committed a crime worthy of such a terrible punishment. But when Davis arrived, he was greeted by Narcisse's sister, Angelina, and she painted a very different picture of the man Davis had met. Angelina described Narcisse as a rolling stone. He had children with multiple women, but refused to support any of them. He also fought with his brothers over land. Narcisse had apparently done well for himself financially, but refused to share his wealth with his family. When one brother asked for a meager $20 loan, Narcisse refused. An argument ensued, and the brothers ended up fighting. The brawl was so bad, law enforcement hauled them off to jail. Over time, these brotherly disputes got worse. When Narcisse and his brother inherited a piece of land, Narcisse refused to go along with a plan to sell the property. This was why Narcisse believed his brother slipped him the zombie poison. But Angelina denied her brother's version of events. She didn't believe he'd taken the zombie potion. She said Narcisse was sick for a year before he died, and she insisted that she'd never heard of any tribunal taking up his case. 
Angelina didn't, however, have a good explanation for how Narcisse had returned from the grave. That remained a mystery. To complicate matters further, her brother's return from the dead had thrown his family's finances into chaos. They took over his fields after they buried him. But when Narcisse returned, he demanded they give back his land. His sister refused. She didn't want anything to do with him. It seemed like the only fact anyone agreed on was that Narcisse had died and now he was alive again. Before this trip, Davis didn't know anything about Haitian culture. He didn't believe in voodoo or zombie lore, but now he wasn't so sure. If he wanted to find the potion that killed Narcisse and the antidote that brought him back, it seemed he would have to fundamentally reevaluate his worldview. Even if that meant confronting a voodoo priest and putting his own life on the line. Coming up, Davis discovers the connection between science and magic. Now, back to the story. When Wade Davis first arrived in Port-au-Prince in the spring of 1982, he didn't believe the tales of voodoo zombies. But after meeting a man who died and come back to life, Davis was suddenly re-evaluating everything he knew. He still had the potion he'd bought from Marcel Pierre shortly after his arrival in Haiti. But by now, Davis was skeptical. Pierre might have scammed him by selling a fraudulent mixture. His suspicions were seemingly confirmed the night after he purchased the powder. Four men were waiting for Davis at the house where he was staying. They seemed friendly. They even had a drink with him. But when Davis showed them the potion, they took one look before declaring it a fake. Exhausted, Davis contemplated his next step. He doubted the authenticity of Pierre's poison even before the four men had shown up. But he had no real way to test it. The ethnobotanist knew of plants that could induce stupors similar to zombification. But they were often potent and dangerous. He couldn't imagine an experienced voodoo priest handling them in a village where they ran the risk of exposing their friends or neighbors. Pierre had created the poison in his temple, extremely close to home. Despite his suspicions, Davis believed Pierre could make the concoction. He just had to find a way to gain his trust enough so he felt comfortable teaching him the real recipe. He hatched a new plan. Three weeks later, he returned to the Eagle Bar to see Pierre again. This time, he brought his friend, the voodoo priest, Max Beauvoir, with him. Davis pulled up a chair next to Pierre and told him the poison he sold was useless. It was a bold accusation, possibly dangerous. Few Bocors would be okay with a client accusing them of lying or incompetence. Around the bar, Pierre's men moved closer. Women stepped forward, all intending to defend his honor. But Beauvoir ordered them to back down. Aware of the crowd, Davis reminded Pierre that he had wealthy friends in New York. They'd pay thousands, but only for a working poison. It was in Pierre's best financial interest to create the real potion. Pierre sat quiet. After a moment, he told Davis that his fearlessness had earned him respect. He'd revealed the true ingredients to the potion under one condition. 
Davis needed to come back alone. The following evening, under the cover of darkness, Davis, Pierre, and Pierre's assistant met at a cemetery. Pierre handed his assistant a shovel. They were going to rob a grave. Apparently, the most important ingredients for the poison were the bones of a child. Davis fought back panic. He'd never disturbed a burial plot before, and his fear of the unknown was getting the best of him. The assistant dug until he uncovered a three-foot-long coffin. When he cracked it open, the smell was ghastly. The child's body was grotesquely decomposed. Her head was shrunken with tiny yellow teeth. In disbelief, the ethnobotanist watched Pierre's assistant hoist the coffin above his head. They would take it with them. As they left the gravesite, Pierre told Davis it would take a few days to find the remaining ingredients. Later that week, Pierre invited the Canadian to a distant scrubland far away from Pierre's temple. When he arrived, Davis saw the carcasses of two blue lizards and a large toad hung on a clothesline. The toad had something wrapped around its leg. It looked like a worm or a centipede. According to Pierre, its presence had helped the amphibians secrete potent chemicals before it died. Other ingredients included potentially toxic plants like a Haitian shade tree and the itching pea, which has prickly hairs that can penetrate someone's skin and cause an irritating pain. The potion also utilized a dried, flattened pufferfish, which Davis knew was extremely poisonous. Given the toxicity of some of these items, Davis felt confident that this was the real zombie recipe. But he needed to study more to understand how the ingredients interacted with each other. Like last time, Pierre handed Davis a cloth to cover his nose. Once ready, his assistant pulled out a metal grater and collected the shavings from a human bone. He then roasted the animals on a grill until they were slick with oil. He transferred everything to a mortar, added the two plants, and ground everything together. Once finished, Pierre held up the poison. It had a sickly, corrosive odor. He told Davis to sprinkle a little across a walkway so his enemy would absorb it through his bare feet. Alternatively, he said Davis could slip it into their shoe or sprinkle it down their back. Davis was confident that Pierre hadn't tricked him this time. He had the zombie potion, but now he needed its antidote. Pierre ground six different plants, seawater, cane alcohol, bone, and other ingredients in his mortar. None were as potent as anything that went into the zombie powder. In fact, Davis knew most were chemically inactive. But after everything he'd witnessed, Davis seemed to wonder if there was more to life than science. Pierre supported this idea. He told Davis voodoo involved magic and folk belief. The antidote could only work if the Bokor used it the right way. After a victim was poisoned, they had 15 days to take the antidote. If they did so, they wouldn't fall into a death-like state. They wouldn't become a zombie. If 15 days passed and they became a zombie, they would need to be buried alive before they could be revived. 
This fit Clervius Narcissus' story, in which he had a funeral and then was pulled from his tomb. His zombification seemed to be the result of a mixture of poison, antidote, and perhaps magic. With gratitude and a new outlook on the world, Davis thanked Pierre. He was ready to go home, believing he'd completed his task. On Easter Sunday, April 11, 1982, Davis arrived in Boston with his samples. He and his fellow researchers analyzed the specimens. They determined Pierre's plants were pharmacologically active compounds, but they weren't potent enough to induce a death-like coma. However, the toad's glands held a reservoir of toxins that could stimulate a person's heart muscles, making it pump until it collapsed. If applied to the skin, it could also affect a person's blood pressure. The toad also secreted a compound with the ability to trigger hallucinations when combined with certain plants. Often, users reported burning sensations, muscle spasms, delirium, and immobilization. It sounded a lot like the mysterious illness Narcisse came down with before his supposed death. But Davis still wasn't sure he'd crack the code of the zombie poison. Some ingredients didn't have any apparent purpose, like the chemically inert lizards. Then there was the mystery of the antidote. Pierre told Davis that it only worked with special rituals and magic. Although Davis had years of expertise as an ethnobotanist, he couldn't explain how everything worked. It all seemed to defy scientific reason. If Pierre was right and magic was real, Davis would need to return to Haiti to be initiated into voodoo society. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with part two on zombies. For more information on zombification, amongst the many sources we used, we found Wade Davis's book, The Serpent and the Rainbow, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, Freddie Rivera, and Carly Madden. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Drew Dougal, edited by Angela Jorgensen and Connor Sampson, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Josephine Cahew, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Thank you.